0: Can I say something about who I am um, and where I come from? Because it will help you understand um, with what kind of authority am I saying what I'm saying uh, today. Um, I've, um, I grow, grew up in a non-Christian family. Uh, my, for my parents, religion was a matter of battle. One was high church Anglican, the other was Catholic, um, and Christianity was just a battlefield for them. So I, I can remember once in my life going to church uh, but by the grace of God, I did have a conscience about, I, I had a conscience about God. I would pray about things um, from, from the age of gee, about 10. I can remember praying um, regularly for things that were important to me like grand finals. <laughs> and 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 girls, I was interested in, and um, and exams and things like that. So two weeks before any of those big events, I'd I would lie in bed and say the Lord's prayer as some sort of religious mantra that I thought God might be pleased with. Um, I became a Christian out of that kind of background um, in my last year of high school or early university, and. Um, And I was discipled by Cole Marshall, a name that some of you may know. Cole's the guy who wrote the book Growth Groups, and it was a fabulous experience being discipled by him. And in one sense, um, it's something of that experience, of being discipled in a navigator's background, that has shaped something of who I am and something of the perspective that i brought to the work I now do. So I'm a pastor at EV Church. Um, EV Church is in... Uh, on the central coast of New South Wales. Um, we began as a Bible study group of around about 10 people, thereabouts. I myself, um, when I was converted, I didn't go to church, um, not until not some of my friends were converted and said, you know, we ought to go to church. And I thought, do you think so? Like, I mean, it'll, it'll mean we miss Sunday night footy. <laughs> Can we really do that? Um, so we went to a tiny, tiny little church Uh, myself and um, a fellow I now work with, Andrew Hurd, who's the pastor of that church. We grew up in a church which was um, very small, about 30, 40 people, maybe 50 at its best. Um, uh, Andrew planted EV Church with a Bible study group of about 10. Um, We've grown steadily, um, and, and it's been a tremendous work of God. I think you can say that. I think Andrew is a gifted leader. I think we've got a good team. Um, But God's been really good to us. And so we've grown to a church of about 1,600. Um, Now, partly I say that to you not to depress you today um, because there's potential for me to depress you today. And I don't want that to be the case. Um, The one qualification that does give me is I've seen a lot of evangelism. We see a lot of people become Christians. Um, And that's partly because we've made some good decisions. I think we have done that. I think it's partly because... Um My background in Andrews has enabled us to um, to analyze what 's taken place um, and that 's what I want to pass on to you today, not to depress you of course um, it 's just that I think i 've seen enough um, evangelism take place and enough people being converted that I can bring some analysis to that that i 'm hopeful will help you so there 's something of our church let me let me therefore give you at the outset if I can. Some myths. I want to give you some myths, but let me pray before we get into it. The, um, the, the stuff we do will be helpful. Our Heavenly Father, we want to pray that the time spent today will be useful in the cause of the gospel. And we want to pray uh, for the work in Tasmania as these people labour in the churches to which you've entrusted them um, and the people who they labour and serve with. We ask, Father, that you would honour yourself in what's done here um, that you'd bring many to know you. We pray that the end result of today is it will be encouraged and perhaps be helped to think through how we might engage in that task with um, with greater understanding. And we pray that you'd be honoured in all that we say and do. We pray that um, that might be the case as the end result of our thinking here today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look, it was really helpful to reflect on death too, wasn't it, that, um, that Mikey just brought us then, because... It brings one of those um, critical realities to our thinking about life that you wouldn't otherwise have. Um, and and it, brings a, it brings a view of life that the vast majority of people who we speak to now are not sure about. Um, what happens after death? There was a certainty about that years ago. There isn't quite the same sort of certainty now. There are inklings um, that there is something after death, but no great certainty And therefore, I kind of want to raise for you some myths about evangelism at the outset. And one of them is that numbers don't matter. Um, Now, I'll tell you why I say that. Coming from a very small church, we in the end ended up, I think, defending our smallness by bringing a critique to that that suggested God is the one that gives the growth and we can simply be faithful and do what we do. Now, there's a truth in that. I'm not bagging that mindset. But I think it ended up becoming a defence for us to not think more carefully about what was going on and to not actually analyse what was going on. That is to say, we didn't stop, I think, at times and think through what are we doing and what fruit is it actually bringing. We didn't do that because we had this ready defence that it was simply a matter of being faithful. Numbers do matter. There's a need to analyse what's going on. As an example, on the central coast... There are 350,000 people. Um, Now, how many churches of 100 is that to reach just one-tenth of that? 35,000 people. 350 churches of 100? Well, I don't think there'd be 350 churches on the Central Coast. And there wouldn't be 350 churches of 100. So if we really want to reach even 10%, there's a need for us to consider what are the numbers? How many non Christian people are we actually engaging with? Um and, and sometimes can I suggest one of the dangers for us is we don't want to do the hard work of asking how many people how many non Christian people have we as a church engaged with this year because it can be depressing. It can be depressing. But there's a need to do it. Because we do need to ask the hard questions, how are we going with this? Numbers don't matter. There's one of those myths that you can um, formulate for yourself because it's a defence. The second is that training is the answer. Um, that is to say, uh, we'll do some training, we'll train up the congregation and they'll go out and evangelise. you know, I've, done, I've been a Christian for 30-odd years um, and I reckon I've done lots of training courses and I reckon I've trained lots of people and I reckon... Most Christian training courses, in whatever they're in, don't work. They don't work. You can expend lots of energy doing training. You can run two ways to live training. You can run just start talking training. You can run, you know, there's all sorts of courses you can run. They don't work unless, um, unless you have some follow-up to them, unless what you help people learn is immediately implemented, um, otherwise, it's forgotten. I'll Give you an example. We trained a bunch of our people in two ways to live. In February, I've got a team of 30 people who I work with uh, to do evangelism. You know, in a course we run called Life. Um, Dan's got a course he'll tell you about called um, Coffee and Jesus, which is similar courses. Um, and we're not saying they're the best thing since sliced bread. They're not that. Uh, we'll say more about that later. Um, There's 30 people I work with in that and I want them well trained. I trained them how to lead two ways to live in February and I checked their implementation on Thursday night. Now how many of them do you think know it? Not many, not many. And I deliberately gave them the revision task because in the next couple of months I want to go over that in detail and actually make sure they know it and give them the situation in which they can use it because there's the only context in which training works. If you positively reinforce it and get them to implement it, there's a much better chance that training will work. Otherwise, you'll expend lots of energy and you won't get much return. Now, that's sad. It is a reality, though. It's a reality. Here's the third one. The mature will evangelise. Now, there's an assumption I think we've actually had about our church. We kind of think through churches. There's the, uh, there's the uh, crowd... Or there's the contacts who uh, just people we've contacted in the community who know something about Christianity. There's the crowd who come along to church now and then. Um, there's the uh, the committed, uh, those who are there somewhat more regularly. There's the core, uh, those who engage in um, in ministry with us, and there's the hardcore, we call it, those who actually get it, <laughs> those who get what we're on about. Now in those circles. I think our assumption is that we'd move people from the outside in and they would get it and as soon as they engage with us in growth groups and that kind of stuff, they'd evangelise. But they don't. They don't always do it. Uh, we're going to come back to why that is in a little while, but um, the short answer is this. There's a confidence issue that means many people don't get it and there's a conviction issue. Now I'm going to mention those briefly at some point and Dan will fill them out for us. Um, event evangelism versus personal evangelism. Now which of those would you rather your people be doing? Personal evangelism. And we all want that, right? Um, we, and we all want our our individual church members and all of them, if we possibly can, to just be going out and engaging with friends in the community and talking with them about the gospel and having the skill to know how to do that. But the reality is, and I think it's got implications for many of your churches because I think i think I found out many of them are around about the size, um, is that 80, 100, um, uh, perhaps a little less than that. Um, event evangelism versus personal evangelism. Some people can do personal evangelism and I think... I think I made the assumption, I think Andrew made the assumption early in our Christian ministry life that you would disciple people and the whole congregation would be able to do it. I don't think so. I just don't think everyone can. Um, there's all sorts of reasons for that. But there's a there's a reality that you need to contend with as you think, how am I going to set up the the evangelism kind of course in the church we're doing? I think in our church at most something like 40-50%, actually let me say 50%, um, will be able to engage another person confidently in the gospel, but not lead them through to conversion. Only 50%. Um, So if you're in a church of 70, 35-year-old people, adults, may be able to do that. Um, But not lead people through to conversion. Now there's a there's an important thing to contend with. Now, yours might be very much better than ours. That's more than possible. Um, but just remember, I think not everyone will be able to do it. So event evangelism versus personal evangelism, you need both. You actually need both. It's a myth to think that personal evangelism, concentrate on that, because the vast majority of people, the event provides the opportunity whereby they actually can. It provides the excuse whereby they might invite a friend. It... Um, it provides the avenue, as Dan will perhaps say later, where they hear someone else explain the gospel or they see a friend actually evangelised. You kind of need both. It's not one versus the other. Um, announcements just give details. So you announce things in church. No, no, they they don't just give details. One of the big needs for our people is they need a vision that helps them be engaged in the work and have a heart. For the work, I found it stirring listening to um, to Mikey preach through the issue of death there, and I figured um, it's good for our soul to hear that. But announcements given the right way do the same sort of thing because you, what what you're actually wanting to do really is to paint a vision of what we're on about, and where does this thing fit into it? Uh, not simply giving information; therefore, it matters the way you word it. it matter all those kind of things matter, um, and again, we'll say more about these things in a little bit. Um, that you'll find a magic bullet. Um, See, lots of people ask me about the life course, or what we call the life series. We don't call it a course because it sounds just a little bit too intellectual, like a TAFE course, you know. Um, And so people ask me about life, the life series. Um, People ask Dan about coffee and Jesus. My point is we think that's a course we've put together, and we think it's good, but it's not the magic bullet. And one day we might have to kill it, because it actually isn't meeting the need, um, or that the way we're implementing it is wrong, and therefore we need to reconsider that. You won't find a magic bullet that'll solve the issue. You may find a bunch of things that work together well, but it's the way you implement it that matters. Um, so don't ask, "Is simply Christianity the course I ought to do?" Is introducing God the course I ought to do? No, no, it's not. That's not the question. The question is, how do I implement it in a way that'll work? I think this is the last one of myths. The minister can do it. I want to explain to you. Now, can I ask, how many of you are pastoral staff in churches? And how many of you are um, admin staff or uh, your, uh, um, your lay members who are involved at the level of being a deacon or something like that? Yeah, fantastic. So, ministers again, hands up? Yeah. So there will be some things, down and I want to say to you today. Um, that we hope to encourage you in. And here's the first one. You can't do it. Yeah. You, you can't do this on your own. Um, you can't do the work of evangelism on your own. You need the people in the pew to um, to engage in the work with you. You need a team. And here's why you can't do it. Um, let me tell you about the way we were. Let me tell you about um, what uh, David Wells in the book, God in the Wasteland. Do you know that book? There's a passage. I think there's a there's a chapter in the beginning of that book, God in the Wasteland, which is a great book to read. It's an old book now, about 20 years old, I think, um, where he talks about a delicious paradise lost, and he talks about the way things were in Massachusetts in America, and what you get the picture of is a a worldview which no longer exists. Now that's the case for Australia. Um, <laughs> When, when the first settlers came here, the Clapham sect in England were careful to recognise this was an opportunity not simply to evangelise Australia but to evangelise the South Pacific. And so they carefully chose Richard Johnson. I realise I'm talking Sydney history, not Tasmanian history. Uh, but they, they carefully chose him because he was an evangelical. They were confident he would do the work and he, and he worked way hard at Samuel Mars and the same thing. Um, They came with assumptions and a worldview, a Christian worldview and a determination that it was evangelical Christianity they wanted to plant. And, And the reality was for many, many, many years in Australia, it was that the seventh day, the Sunday, it was church day. In fact, the best entertainment you could have anywhere in town was to go to church. The, the, the thing you'd do, it'd be like going to the theatre to see someone preach. Now, I'm not sure if it would have been as engaging, um, but that was that was fun. That was a pastime. That was what you did on the seventh day. Now, that went out in New South Wales, I think, 20 or 30 years ago, the seventh day. So that was when Sunday trading came in. Um, but that whole view was ebbing away before then. So when Billy Graham came in 1959, are there people here who were converted through Billy Graham? yeah. And everywhere in churches you'll find um, many ministers, their conversion experience was 1959 because what existed in churches in those days was a, um, a bunch of people who were definitely converted and a whole mass of people who were nominals, who just attended church. And when Billy came, I wasn't there, <laughs> um, but when Billy came, a whole bunch of nominals heard the gospel with clarity for the first time and were converted that doesn't exist anymore. You don't have that massive nominals around that you could simply evangelise. So when I was on the University of New South Wales campus in 1979-80, I would evangelise people and they would be converted in a lunchtime. In a lunchtime. That never happens now. Well, God can do it now, but the reality is the furniture is just not in place for it to happen often now. So church going in Australia peaked in 1963 and has been declining since. Um, and and there's, the, there's some context for understanding the worldview we don't have anymore. And I'm saying this because the one, one privileged benefit I think I have is to have had the time in a position, um, working at a discrete area of Christian life, to think through and analyse what's happened, where are we, and therefore, in this new context in which we find ourselves, what do we do? Now, I'm not going to go through this slide in any kind of detail at all, except to say we've experienced a radical worldview and there are all the pressures that have, that have helped to bring it about. We're radically secularised so that... Um, not, not as secularised, can I say, as Europe, um, but not America either, uh, which has far more public discourse about Christianity. Um, but there's a very um, distinct... Break um, in our community about what you can say in public life and what you can't say. Christianity exists in the private realm, not in the public square. Um, and the implications of that are significant, very significant for the people in our pews. Because how do you bring Christianity naturally into the conversation when it's not permissible to speak about it in the public square? A- and if it's not spoken about in the public square, what are the assumptions that our non Christian friends have about the most fundamental of things? Death? All their assumptions about that are changing. Um, uh, um, God? Actually, who is God and what sort of character does he have? Um, um, Materialism has shaped us. Because how can heaven be any better than living in Hobart on a warm day? (laughs) (laughs) You know, living on the central coast. That is, it is like heaven up there. It's warmer than here. Um, It's not as clean and pristine and beautiful as here. But... You know, it's a wonderful place to live, and I think many of our friends think, "How can heaven be better than what we've got?" Um, um, scientism, by which I mean, one of the great um, one of the great obstacles for the non-Christian person as they consider um, Bible things. Is they think, "But hasn't science shown the Bible to just be a myth?" And, and of course, they're thinking Genesis chapter one and two. Uh, so, what credibility? Does science? Does Christianity have any more? And of course, Family Law Act I think was nineteen. Um, uh, I think the Family Act came in in nineteen seventy-five. That's radically reshaped family life in Australia. Uh, radically reshaped people's understanding of um, uh, of responsibility and discipline and um, the, the kind of stable world that others have grown up in in the past doesn't exist. We've got a radically unstable society. Now, that's not to depress you. It's just to say there's a reality that we need to work with. And therefore, I think one of the really valuable things to do, and Dan will fill this a bit more of this out later, is we need to reverse engineer where are we now at. Um, Part of that is what's the impact on the Christian in your churches of 100 or uh, 80 or 60 What's the impact of a changed worldview on them? And I'm going to suggest there is a profound impact on them um, that that we need to contend with if we actually want to see conversion growth. And, of course, the second thing to note there is, what's the impact on the listener? Well, it's massive. Um, Even their language, as I was trying to say before, their language about God or faith or sin uh, or the Bible or... When you say things, you don't know any more what they're understanding by it. (laughs) Now that doesn't mean you've got to to explain everything you say. It just means you've got to choose your language really carefully. And I don't know if in lots of our evangelism we've thought through our assumptions about that, um, nor have we thought through actually how long it'll take to actually help a person engage with the gospel and come to conversion. Um, So we'll say something more about that in a bit. So I want to raise for you four things that Dan's going to fill out um, about the impact on the Christian, firstly, and the impact on the listener, the non-Christian. Now, I'm just going to, I'm going to touch on these and leave them because Dan will fry me if I <laughs> say too much on it. But um, the impact on the Christian, one of the massive things is the issue of conviction, by which I simply mean, let me give the illustration. Um, if, you don't have, if you have Christians in your church, and we all do, who are not sure about their salvation, they will not evangelise. They will do it as a matter of duty for a short time, but they will feel the public pressure to not, and they won't. That's it. It'll be game over. There's there's much more to say about conviction. There's much more to say about confidence, because there's a profound loss of confidence for the Christian, there's a lack of connection with their non-Christian friends around. There's an inability to relate to the culture. Dan will fill all that stuff out. But we need to contend with that and think through what does it mean and how do we engage with it. Impact on the listener? Well, gee, when I, when I as a kid from a non-Christian family heard the gospel for the first time without much clarity... Can I say, as I think back in retrospect, I got enough of it to process it. I didn't become a Christian there and then on the spot. I went home and read the Bible. I dug out the Bible that my uncle had given me one year. <laughs> he gave me a pair of board shorts and he gave me a New Testament, a good news for modern man. I pulled out the board shorts and I thought, awesome. I looked at the New Testament and I thought, What? <laughs> I put it in my underpants drawer and I never saw it again for eight years. And when I I engaged with the gospel and heard it for the first time with some measure of clarity, I got it somewhat. Um, But that's not the case today because the the biblical literacy of your non-Christian friends is zero compared to what it once upon a time was. Um, and as you nod on that and, and, and recognise that to be true, how then do I help them get it? And how long is that going to take now? Much longer than it did before. And, and the problem for us as Christians is this, I think. We almost always operate in the Christian realm because, if I can put it this way, we feel really busy. Yeah, We feel we're really busy and we've got lots to do Um, And we need to think through are we busy doing productive things or not, but there's another story. We feel busy, so we haven't quite got time to sit down and think through how will this now work in my context? So what we tend to do instead is find out what's working in their church, we'll do that. And we import that thing and we assume it'll work, but it won't necessarily. There's a lack of biblical literacy which means we've got to rethink that whole process. We're going to say more about this in a bit. Um, there, is, um, there is, a for the non-Christian, a strained plausibility structure. That is to say, uh, how can I believe the Bible when it's discredited? Um, how can I believe in uh, the, the Bible's account of creation when science suggests it's not true? how can I believe the claims that Christians make when we know that what it says about homosexuality is is you know it grossly misrepresents the reality um, how can I take Christianity seriously when the things that it says about women are so culturally offensive is the assumption the non Christian person holds and so there's a whole plausibility structure for the non christian that just doesn't doesn't fit there's all sorts of things for them as they hear the gospel that um that they're wondering, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, but, I hear what you're saying, but. Um, and, and there's a cultural disconnection, that is to say, uh, more, more particularly the case in the Reformed churches, can I suggest, than other places, because if you have a, if your life is um, church and your kids go to Christian schools uh, and you're a pastor, if I can put it this way, or you're beavering away hard in Christian ministry, your ability to connect with the outside world is diminished, but you still need to be doing it in some fashion. But there's a a profound shift in culture. Um, It's not easy just to go and hang out with your non-Christian mates. It's not easy to do that. And there's a cultural thing that we've done as church. I think, in fact, to go back to Anglicanism is my tradition, simply because when I became a Christian, the church, the Anglican church down the road, that's where the girls were. That's where the girls were at, at school that I really liked. That's where we went. That's when we gave up watching Sunday Night Footy. That was what we gave it up for. Um, but the Anglican church, I, um, I would suggest, has never. Perhaps in Sydney they've done this quite well. In Hobart, I don't know. Um, there, are there Anglicans here? There are. Oh, sorry. Are there Anglicans here today? I can speak freely. <laughs> Um, um, in Sydney, uh, as some of you will perhaps know, um, Philip Jensen, Peter Jensen, they've worked really hard on um, providing an accessible church culture. But I don't know that we've nailed it in Sydney. Uh, we've just gone through, in Sydney they've just gone through 10 years of, um, of direct mission, um, seeking to reach 10%. And it hasn't been an overwhelming success. It's been It's been disappointing. Um, and part of that at least will be there's a cultural disconnect in our churches that we need to think through because lots of visitors come Tim Sims who knows that name a couple of you know Tim Sims there's a there's an article in the briefing which I think you can probably get online Tim Sims is a corporate analyst um, and he's a guy that what I mean by that is he's a guy who takes companies like Woolworths and has in fact done that in the past, companies that were non-productive and he's Strip them down, analyse them, um, re-establish them, and put them back so they're actually working properly. And he did that with the um, he did that with the Sydney Diocese, um, and he took it apart and analysed it, and then presented his findings. and They were depressing, um, and it's it's actually one of the most successful Anglican dioceses in the world, and it's growing by about one point four percent. The only problem is the population is growing by 0.9%, so real growth there is 0.6%. And lots of energy went into that.
1: Um,
0: one of the things he found was in any church of, say, 100, he reckons they got... Now, this might not be the case for you, so don't be depressed, but he reckons they got something like, and I hope to be quoting the figures correctly, I think 700 visitors a year who weren't weren't part of the church. and And the vast majority of those were non-Christian visitors, but very few of them were staying. Now there's a question to ask, why is that? That there can be so much passing, not putting in crass terms as if people are just a commodity, but so much passing trade, you know, but but no one's sticking. There is there is at least a cultural issue there not being addressed and there's there's much more than that I would suggest as well. So let me suggest to you, having not tried to depress you, I want you to see, and here's the basic thesis, I want you to see the world view in which we're now immersed is different. And we therefore need to interact with that and frame our thinking in that kind of situation. So what do we do? Where's the encouragement? Here's the encouragement. We are back in the first century. We're not quite there yet. There's still some remnant of kind of the Judeo-Christian worldview that that hangs around that you can trade off somewhat. But it's largely gone. So we're back where the Apostle Paul was. And in the first century, the gospel was powerful. It's still powerful. Um, You apply it wisely and you teach wisely. You'll still see fruit born. So be encouraged. Don't be despondent. You need to be wise about how you implement that. There's the first thing. Second thing is, I think the basic questions are unchanged. Don Carson wrote a book called The Gagging of God. Who's read it? And he wrote it, I think, 20 years ago. I remember reading it about 20 years ago. Um, And it was, I think, my first year in full-time Christian ministry. And it was was a book that was about that thick. And I reckon about that much of it was footnotes. (laughs) Because it's... Don Carson must have read five billion books to write the book The Gagging of God. It was all about postmodernism and the impact it's had on our society. I, I listened to some talks which you can still find on the Gospel Coalition of Don Carson talking about evangelism, I think, in the 21st century. Um, and a lot of his insights are um, almost as um, pertinent now as they were then, though I'm going to suggest the culture has shifted a little bit for the better. Um, And and here's one of the things that Don doesn't say, but I think I would say now, that the basic questions underneath the surface are the same as they ever were. Um, So the the business that Mikey raised about the issue of death, that is still profoundly there. Um, It's not in the public discourse in the same sort of way as it may have been. You, You may need to do some work to unearth the questions, but they're still there. Uh, One of the things I was particularly interested in on the Central Coast is no-one is reaching Gen Yers particularly, not in Australia. Um, And so we were seeing lots of um, boomers being converted. Um, uh, um, 150 a year we we would see converted um, on the Central Coast. Or at least to say there's a profession of faith and I want to be careful with that that language for your sakes. We would see lots and lots of people converted, but we weren't doing so great... um, in the Gen Y area. And there were reasons for that, which I think we've since addressed and now doing really well in that area. And my thought at the time was is it simply that they're so postmodern in their assumption that we don't communicate? It isn't that. Postmodernism, at least in our context, is pretty much, you know, there's some stuff to get past, sure. But the basic questions are really the same as they ever were. Um, you just need to unearth them and tap into them in the right way. Um, the old's becoming new. It was the case, I think, about even as little as 10 years ago, that um, our, our really hostile um, left-wing media, which are, which are quite openly hostile to Christianity, had bred in young people most particularly a great hostility to Christianity. Um, but I think that's beginning to dissipate a little. Um, and Carson, who was with us a little while ago, noted the same thing in America. On a university evangelism mission in America, you don't get the same sort of hostility from the young person now. Now, guess why? Because they don't know enough about Christianity to be hostile anymore. <laughs> it's kind of it's almost pioneer evangelism. Again. It's almost like they're a blank slate now, and that is that is awesomely good news because um, you don't have to get over that that. Uh, an attitudinal barrier in quite the same way as you used to That's great news um, multiculturalism is how about multicultural your hands up for yes yeah yeah you've got a you've got a number of um, Chinese students is that right yep and in the sorry Greek Orthodox Church yeah but yeah, exactly, exactly right. So I didn't want to make too many assumptions about it. You're like us on the Central Coast. We are totally monocultural. I think there's actually an enclave of people at night, if you go to our local shopping centre who um, are Sikhs, uh, and, um, and they do the trolley work at night. You know, they round up the trolleys and stuff like that. And I'm thinking, where are you guys during the daytime? I just never see you. <laughs> you know, there are Muslims on the Central Coast. So the Central Coast will change, but we're effectively monocultural. And we can, we can simply we have the luxury, if I can put it that way, um, of for a time working with a just one cultural demographic, which does make some things easier. But what multiculturalism is doing is they're not hardened in the same way as your typical white Anglo Australian. I don't think they're anywhere near as hard. Is that um, I was talking to uh, Luke. Now Luke's not here today. I think is he? Yeah, I was talking to Luke last night who works with a focus group at uni, I think that's absolutely the case, that the, the person who comes into Australia doesn't have the same white Anglo materialistic assumptions that kind of says Christianity, eh, it's passé, that's something my grandmother was about. Um, there's kind of the white Anglo thing, although it's changing with the younger guys. But not not the person that's coming into Australia, I, I think, we are seeing and want to pray that they'll impact for good the remainder of the population. And that's the kind of thing that is beginning to happen, which ought to give us some hope. So let me finish. What's the way ahead? Now Dan's going to fill out a whole bunch of this. He's going to illustrate what the way they've implemented some of these things at, uh, at Soul Church. But the way ahead, well I'm talking... In the first instance to the ministers among you, the pastoral staff among you, but not simply you, um, there are decisions you guys need to make that the rest of the church is dependent upon you to make and that you must make. Um, it, it is not sufficient to have a comfortable church of 200. If that's your aspiration, then it is a little bit like um, it's a little bit a bit like that terrible passage in Isaiah. Now, Isaiah 39, let me remind you of what the passage is about. Isaiah 39 um, is the turning point of the book. Um, And envoys from Babylon come to Hezekiah, the king. And Hezekiah, of course, you know, is one of the great heroes in the Old Testament. Um, And and they come to him and ask him to show, show him around the city. And Hezekiah does. He obliges. And Isaiah comes to him and says, what did those men ask to see? They asked to see the city. And what did you show them? I showed them everything. And Isaiah points out to him, the time will come when your um, your women, your children will be carted off to slavery in Babylon and all this will be gone. And Hezekiah's reaction, do you remember it? It's terrible. It's terrible. It's It's for me as I... As you read through the Old Testament, you see the hero he is and you see this moment, it's, it's, it's chilling. What he says is, that's good, because there will be peace in my time. And you think, how short-sighted it is. Now, it's too short-sighted to be comfortable with a church of 200. Um, it's too short-sighted because we won't reach Australia thinking like that. So church needs, You need structure. And to mention briefly something Dan will pick up, you need structure because evangelism now takes much longer, and there need to be much smaller steps. Um, you need to keep relationship with people for much longer. Um, I, I've seen people last term become Christians; they entered into our they entered into engagement with us a couple of years ago, three years ago. So we've had to kind of keep relationship with them that long to help steer them where it was going to be best for them, takes a long time, three years. Even when people respond to the gospel at the course that I run or that Dan runs, do you know how long the follow-up goes for? Two years. You just can't... When we first began kicking that off, we would would evangelise people they were converted and sincerely converted. You pour them into the Bible study group and they die because <laughs> the water is so deep and people are talking about stuff they've got no idea about and they, as quickly as we pour them in, they pour themselves out uh, and that's because it takes so much longer. You need structure. You, you need a structure in church that's not you, the minister. It's too big for you. Uh, you need a whole team of people we 'll say more about that. The Christian needs confidence because in a secularized world, the one in which we live there 's a profound loss of confidence for the Christian. Does the gospel have the answers uh, what about the difficult questions people ask what about homosexuality and gay marriage and what about creation and uh, is hell really true and We'll come back to those things. The Christian needs confidence and they lack it and they won't engage in evangelism without it. And the listener needs lots of time because they're not going to get this overnight. It's going to take them some time to do that. And therefore, we need to help them. We need to set up church accordingly and there'll be decisions, ministers that you need to make that no one else can make. Uh, but there'll be people in your teams that you'll need to engage in your congregations that you'll need to engage with because they they want to they want to be part of the work. Um, we need to actually enable them to be able to do that.